Unbroken, the Paralympics and its record is sponsored by HireUp, Australia's largest NDIS-registered platform for people with disability to find and manage their own support workers. To find out more, head to hireup.com.au. That's H-I-R-E-U-P.com.au. It's worse now with these kids with telephones and stuff because they're always trying to do get videos to make fun of you. Yeah, my 19-year-old son, he hates it if I'm at the shops after school because he's really protective over me and he's like, Mum, just get out of here. What about young kids? Little kids. Oh, look, it's the same situation. Parents are just pathetic and don't educate their children because, I mean, the kids don't know. The kids are just asking questions, but I can't stand it when the parents just ignore them and they go, Mum, Mum, she's got no legs, she's got no legs. Mum, Mum, she's got no legs. And say, instead of just going, stop, that's rude. She's just doing her shopping and I can't stand that. I'm like, just talk to your kids. (laughs) It just fuels this perception that disability is a bad thing. A hundred percent. And a lot of people still can't believe I've got kids. They're like, but how did you have kids? I went, really? You don't know where babies come from? (laughs) Tracy Barrell's stories are the sort that people with disability know only too well. I'm Annabelle Williams. I'm a Paralympic swimmer. I've been the Vice President of Paralympics Australia, the Legal Counsel of the Australian Olympic Committee and Chair of Paralympics Australia's Athletes Commission. In this fourth and final episode of Unbroken, we'll be looking at whether the Paralympics has been a trailblazer for improving broader accessibility and removing barriers to inclusion for the disability community. How much of a trailblazer has it really been? Hopefully this leads to some really interesting conversations about why the Paralympics exist, why they're important, but what needs to pop up alongside them to complement the rest of the disabled experience. Has disability representation improved beyond Paralympic sport? Together we can take the lessons of the Paralympic movement and push an agenda and move that into everyday life. And is the Paralympic movement leading the way in terms of representation and inclusion? among both Paralympic athletes. There's a lot less support out there for people with more severe disabilities, and yet they are still just as important in the Paralympic movement. And among the leadership of Paralympics Australia. I don't think there's any senior management, at least, that have disability, is that right? No one on the executive leadership team at this point in time, no. But first, let's go to the Sydney 2000 Paralympic pool. The water is probably one of my favourite places to be in the sense of obviously I race in Paralympic sport because I'm vision impaired but when I'm racing it doesn't feel like I am disabled. I don't really use my vision to my... I don't really use it when I swim because there's not much to use anyway. Karcher Dedekind has competed at two Paralympic Games and won three medals. She exceeded many people's preconceptions of what she was capable of which is a pretty typical experience for Paralympians. So I kind of just go with the flow of the water and I've got a good spatial awareness of where the lane rips are and it's just a whole different peaceful surrounding that sometimes 
is a blessing because obviously with the really good hearing, I can get overstimulated very quickly. Quite frankly, people being able to see out of both eyes and well is a bit creepy concept to me. I try and imagine it every day and I still can't get my head wrapped around it after 21 years, but I don't know any different. So don't get me wrong, I do swim into the lane rope and hurt myself all the time. I've always been taught I can't do things because I'm vision impaired, which is absurd to me. I can still do stuff. I can still do stuff pretty well. And my swimming career kind of proves that. And so like, it does feel like a superpower. Stories like Karcher's are common. We've heard lots of them in this series. But what about the impact of the Paralympics on disabled lives beyond sport? That's the focus of this episode. There will be heaps of people out there who have had their relationships with exercise and body image and their own capability changed for the better because of the Paralympic movement. Because the only other context in which disability and exercise kind of consistently meet is from a functional therapeutic standpoint. Hannah Davini isn't a Paralympian or a sportswoman and has never wanted to be. But she also says the Paralympics has been positive for disabled people more broadly. For me, as someone with cerebral palsy, I am not going to be good at physical things. So I often would feel like a failure or like I was defective or broken or whatever. All that kind of nasty internalised ableism stuff that just leaks out. So it's taken me a number of years to get to a place where I can actually understand that my body is allowed to move, I'm allowed to enjoy that. My cerebral palsy is in the middle of the CP spectrum. I can use my legs and arms. I just can't use my legs especially independently. I can't get out of bed on my own. I can't get dressed on my own. I need help in the bathroom, all of that kind of stuff. If you want me to do up a shirt with buttons on it, good luck. Hannah is a writer, actor, disability advocate and editor-in-chief of a media company. And she's been pretty successful wearing all those hats. She told us in episode one how frustrating it's been over the years being asked what Paralympic sport she was going to do. It just never appealed to me in the way that it felt like it was meant to. And I'm doing that in inverted commas, which often made me feel like I had missed out on some gene that I was supposed to have as a disabled person. I was like, well, if I'm not interested in making sport my career and I also am not interested in, like, disappearing. And Hannah has shown that disabled people are capable of much more than is often expected of us. Through a lot of hard work but also fortuitous timing, being the kind of person who isn't afraid to just go straight to the top or straight to power. It just was really necessary, not only for my own sanity and my own sense of self, because if it's Paralympics or disappear, well, I'm, I'm not going to disappear. How am I going to be the most visible I can be? And I should also say, like, all of this is done, not just for me, but in the hope that the disabled kids and disabled people of the future will be able to look to my path as a potential third option. And I don't know, I feel like maybe I've gone some ways to, to achieving some pretty visible moments. 
Hannah's First was starting an ongoing campaign to persuade Disney to make a film about a disabled princess. That caught the attention of media worldwide and really put Hannah's advocacy on the map. Then came the pop stars. I managed to get both Lizzo and Beyonce to change some of their lyrics, which contained an ableist slur relevant to my experience as someone with cerebral palsy. So that which word I'm referring to, I'm going to say it. If you need to skip past this bit, that's fine. So the word was spaz, short for spastic, which is obviously used as a kind of cultural shorthand for someone who is less intelligent, someone who is less in control, someone who is kind of losing it a bit, basically. Those are not qualities I would assign to myself, but as someone with spastic diplegic cerebral palsy, where spastic refers to spasticity, which is just like unending, painful tightness in my whole body, basically, but particularly my legs, that doesn't have to be triggered by anything specific and is constant. So for instance, while I'm sitting here across from you, I can feel that my hamstrings are really tight or that my adductors, which are the muscles like on the inside of your groin, are really tight. And that doesn't ever stop. That doesn't go away. Just took issue with the fact that they'd use that word because it's something that had been used against me in the playground as a kid. I called Lizzo out first. A couple of days later, after a fair amount of media attention and honestly some pretty intense trolling as well, Lizzo released a statement saying she was changing the lyric. Here's a new re-recorded version without the slur in it. She just said, thanks, learnt the lesson and moved on. Didn't make a big deal about it, didn't expect a medal, didn't get angry, didn't get defensive, didn't double down. Six weeks later, I get a notification on Twitter from someone trying to be snarky. And they were like, so are you going to call Beyonce out too? And I was like... What are they talking about? We've just done this six weeks ago and I basically, during that time, had been called pretty much every insult you could think of. People had just... It was coming in droves from all sorts of directions with an internet connection. Unfortunately for me, Beyonce had decided to use the word spaz twice in a song called Heated that she wrote with Drake. So I actually wrote an article kind of expressing my frustration and all of that and being like, oh, I really don't want to have to call up Beyonce because, you know, she's Beyonce. And then I got a message being like, hey, so The Guardian wants to republish your piece. And I got a message from a Guardian journalist later that day that was like, I am so sorry for what's about to happen to you when we hit publish on this. Your inbox of every kind is just going to blow up. And then like a day or two later, my phone rang. It was a journalist calling me. It was like seven in the morning. And they're like, how do you feel about Beyonce changing the lyric? And I was like, sorry, what? She did what? Please hold for five seconds while I investigate this, freak out. And then I will come back to you with an articulate, an articulate answer. But right now I'm very intensely I guess, metaphorically, jumping up and down because this is just like, what? And yet that was a lot. 
So Hannah's doing a pretty good job of proving it's not Paralympics or nothing for people with disability. Her media project, Missing Perspectives, connects the experiences of young women around the world to big media companies who don't have the resources or the inclination to find those voices themselves. She's also forging a career as an actor and recently played in an Australian TV drama. It was written by people with cerebral palsy about people with cerebral palsy. That led to her playing a leading role in a feature film. But I'm just really excited because literally every creative dream or whim or sense of idea I had as a kid, whether that be acting or the fact that I have a book coming out and I've wanted to be an author since I was four, like, it's all actually coming true. And if I think about that too long, I get way too emotional, but it's really important to me because that little girl um, knew she didn't want to play sport, knew she didn't want to disappear, didn't know what came next, and now... Now I do. Hannah's achieved a lot, prompted by her pushing back against the stereotype that a person with disability must be a Paralympic athlete if they want to shine. Some broadcasters also feel a responsibility to make sure the spotlight on people with disability extends beyond a two-week period every couple of years. Liz Johnson was a swimmer who won three medals at the Paralympics before retiring in 2016. Liz is now the executive producer of the Paris 2024 Paralympics for Britain's Channel 4. She was also involved with Channel 4's coverage of the last games in Tokyo, and she spoke to us remotely from London. Tokyo, I think it was, like, it was a big focus on actually the fact that getting treated well for two weeks of a four-year cycle isn't enough. And so I think now the narrative and the responsibility of the Paralympic coverage is yes, to showcase elite sport for people with disabilities, but also help bridge the gap for that majority of people who live with disabilities that have no intention or desire to be Paralympic athletes, but currently do not experience equity in society. So how do we bridge this gap then? How do we make the Paralympics benefit the broader community? Liz suggests there's power in the coverage to tell the stories of athletes in a way that goes beyond their disabilities to make the connections for people. Because I think it's very easy, even as successful Paralympic athletes, people come back and then get mistreated when they're waiting to get the train or when they're trying to go out to a restaurant and there's no lift or the lift doesn't work or people just barge past them. Or if someone with a visual impairment has got an assistant dog is, in inverted commas, holding people up. People don't have the the empathy and the understanding and the patience uh, to understand that, that that individual has a right. And I think that's where the coverage can help bridge those gaps. Liz says that interactions with disabled people in wider society will improve if the public connects to athletes through Paralympic coverage that goes beyond our disabilities. Everybody involved with the production of the Paralympics, including former athletes, including other talent with disabilities, know that there's a bigger picture here and actually we have to change the narrative for society because it's not okay that in 2023 there are so many unnecessary barriers that exist for disabled people and people with disabilities in everyday life. 
Liz says after London 2012, the lessons learned through the Paralympic movement started to transfer to other areas of society. And largely it was because Paralympians then either retire or they go back out into the the real world that is not the, the, the games time bubble and they have to live their lives and then they can't get in their local cafe or they can't get to a meeting when they need to be there because the transport's not accessible or they don't get through a recruitment process. So is there something super practical going into Paris 2024 that we could set as our goal? What is the one thing that could shift the dial to benefit everybody in the disability community? Yeah, I think the practical things that we can do are stop and take a minute when we're doing something and ask ourselves, why do we do it like this? Is there another way? Because I think quite often it's attitudes that stop people progressing. There's more than one way to do most things in this life. And it's that typically that blocks people. And I think we hide behind this idea that we've tried our best to make adjustments or we've considered these options, but actually, is that enough? If that if an individual still can't get on an aeroplane or go to the toilet... Liz says we need to work together to ensure the lessons from the next Paralympics are pushed into wider society. And people who are not disabled don't get away with that just being the positive that they've done. There's this thing that happens every Paralympics where disability inclusion feels like it's going to improve when people fall in love with the Games. But then we go back to the normal uphill battle. People with disabilities are made to feel like they should be grateful for an opportunity or they should be grateful for having their needs even considered, let alone met. And that, I think, is the issue here, is actually human first. We've all got needs, whether we have a disability or not, and anybody can become disabled at any time. And it doesn't mean necessarily you've got a physical disability or a hidden disability to become disabled. We can be disabled by where we live or our socioeconomic background or our age or there's lots of different things that can disable us. And I think we need to change the way that the world sees disability. Together, we can take the lessons of the Paralympic movement and push an agenda and move that into everyday life. Our disability is part of who we are, but it's not everything that we are. And actually, the only reason that it has to currently define so much of who a person is or what they do or what they become is because of the barriers that exist in society. Everything Liz says is so true. Paralympians can be fated superstars one minute and unable to get on a bus or pointed at and laughed at the next. The contradiction needs to be called out. By openly addressing the issue, we really do have the potential to improve the lives of all people with disability. Probably the most fascinating and and best part is meeting people with such different disabilities and just rolling on in to the food hall with people eating with their feet, with people balancing stuff on their hairs, but it's our happy place. There's no people trying to run after us and trying to help us and save us because we're all the same. That's Tracy Barrell describing the food hall at the 1992 Paralympics in Barcelona. Tracy won two gold medals at those games. 
I so clearly remember my first moments in the food hall at the Beijing 2008 Paralympic Games. I remember sitting down next to a Chinese athlete. He was missing both of his arms at the shoulders and in front of him he had a laptop and a bowl of ramen with chopsticks. And I remember thinking that someone might come and assist him. And when I realised no one was, I thought perhaps I could. And as I was about to stand up and offer my assistance, he put both of his feet up on the table and with one foot started touch typing, much faster than I touch type with one hand. And with his other foot, he ate ramen with chopsticks. As a person who had been often underestimated by society because of my disability, I realised that here I was, underestimating what this man was capable of. It was a great lesson for me on the eve of what was the biggest competition of my life. And from that moment forward, I decided that I was never going to underestimate what another person could do. And in turn, I was never going to underestimate what I was capable of either. There's, there's so much unspoken stuff that happens when you're in a group like that. We come together and just understand. Mm. But as Tracy described earlier, outside of the Paralympic bubble, those shared experiences don't mean a lot when people point and laugh at her because of her disability. Hello. <laughs> we visited Tracy at her Tweed Heads home where she lives with her dogs. What about employment for people with disability? It's always been such a barrier. Do you feel like, have you ever gone for jobs where people have made assumptions or asked strange questions? Yeah, yeah. I've struggled to get a job all, all the time and I'm qualified up the wazoo. I've got so many diplomas, degrees in all sorts of industries and I applied for jobs and I got sick of going to the interview and they have a heart attack so I was sick of seeing their faces and being really disappointed and then magically the job was taken even though I was the first applicant. And because uh, they go, oh, no, sorry, the job's been taken. Oh, no, you're too qualified. And well, they'd go, oh, and they look at me like, mm-hmm. and so I got sick of seeing that. So then I would ring up, apply for the interview, and then I'd go, oh, by the way, um, I have a disability. And they go, oh, you're in a wheelchair. I go, no, 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 I'm not in a wheelchair. I'm on a skateboard. I have one arm and no legs. So are you just a head and an arm? I'm like, no, I have a torso. I'm just missing my legs and my one arm. Uh, I don't think the job's right for you. I'd say that in the initial conversation. Did you ever feel like you were treated with respect in any of those interviews? Hell no. (laughs) They say I look look great on paper. And I'm not going for jobs where I've got to run up and down stairs or you need to have legs for. I'm talking like admin jobs, basic jobs that I'm way overqualified for, but happy to do because I want to have a job and feel like I'm important and part of a team or something. And, yeah, it's just disappointing. It's depressing and, frankly, horrifying to see the statistics around disability representation in the workplace, especially in senior roles. When we talked to Kate McLaughlin from Paralympics Australia, she said athletes being visible outside of their sports could help. Using their platform to go outside of sport and to... And I think increasingly, as our athletes become more well-known, they're going to be in a better position to actually be advocates beyond sport so I think advocating for people and not just once every four years as well they do feel that sense of responsibility as well which is really great I do worry about from a performance perspective that they've got this weight on their shoulders around representing the disability community yet they're still competing so I think increasingly we'll probably see more Paralympians stay in the public eye beyond competing and then they'll have far more impact. 
As Kate said, it is a lot for athletes to feel responsible for the broader disability community, and it's not their role. But the reality is, many of my retired Paralympic friends now work in jobs where they do advocate for broader inclusion. And what about the organisation at the head of the Paralympic movement in Australia? What responsibility do they carry? Our producer Sarah Allerley raised it with Kate. So you've been at Paralympic Australia since 2009 mm-hmm. and you're, I think, one of the longest serving yeah. staff members. What are your thoughts on the numbers of employees in management with a disability? We need to do better. 100% need to do better. It's something which I know we're starting to focus on far more than we have done in the past. Uh, and yeah, look, the fact that we don't have, I don't even know what our percentage is in the moment, but it's too low. You know, 20% of Australians have a disability and I'm sure we're not at that number of representatives with a disability in our organisation. And yeah, absolutely. One of the things I'm working on at the moment is identifying from the Australian Paralympic team, this is obviously not the organisation, but the team itself, um, to, to make sure from an operations perspective, we identify more people with a disability who are servicing the team in Paris. I'm conscious that I'm someone without lived experience of disability myself and the Chef de Mission have been for quite a while. I feel like that needs to shift and we need to see leadership from alumni. As Chef de Mission, Kate's the team leader for the Paris Games. Kate said a new deputy Chef de Mission role would be filled by a disabled person. The idea is that Deputy Chef de Mission will come in, have a Games under their belt in Paris with a view that LA 2032 we will hope to have, or LA 28 and then Brisbane 32, have representation of an athlete. Yeah, because my understanding is that I don't think there's any senior management at least that, are, that have disability. Is that right? No one on the executive leadership team at this point in time, no. Is there anything happening with the other management roles? Yeah, look, I know that my CEO, Catherine Clark, is very keen to make sure that the rest of the organisation changes and there's been active conversations at senior leadership level about how we can go about that. So it's certainly not just me. It's something the organisation has identified as a problem and we need as a problem we need to fix for sure. People with disability face barriers that go well beyond employment discrimination. One huge area is transport. Almost every disabled person has one nightmarish story or another from the way they were treated to damaged equipment. And Paralympians are no exception. So we do a lot of long-haul travel and we give airlines plenty of chances to ruin our chairs. Dan Michelle is a Paralympic boccia player and he travels a lot. We've had a few situations. So like most recently, like when we were in Brazil at the end of last year for the World Championships, we actually had our chairs left halfway. We flew Sydney to Santiago, Chile, and then we were supposed to fly from Santiago to Rio. We ended up having to go via Sao Paulo to Rio. We arrived in Sao Paulo and our wheelchairs weren't there. And we're like, okay, what the heck's going on here? And um, Jamison, my teammate, had um, very, you know, savvily put an um, air tag in her wheelchair. So she got up her phone and realised that it was still on the ground in Santiago. And we're like, oh, no, what the hell? So we, we knew they were all there at least because the airline had no idea where they were. So if we didn't have that air tag, I'm not sure if, like how long it would have taken to find the wheelchairs. Anyway, we got to Rio... And yeah, having to like coordinate, trying to coordinate with obviously Portuguese speaking, who don't speak any English, it was really hard to try and get a message across about what we needed and what was happening with the wheelchairs and stuff and ended up taking three days to get them. Yeah, we were getting pushed around in like airline manual chairs that were super uncomfortable for three days. 
You're very patient. (laughs) You said, you know, normally we would need our wheelchairs immediately. I think the argument could be put that you need your chair immediately when you arrive off a plane. So you had to rely on the airport manual wheelchairs with little caster wheels for three days. We got to Rio and the airport was like, okay, we'll give you some of our chairs. I'm like, okay, at least we got something. It was like a 45 to an hour drive from the airport out to where we were staying, like, obviously there's me in a manual chair with like very poor, like seat belts and stuff, going over these Rio roads, bumping around. I was sure I was going to end up on the floor at some point, but somehow I stayed in my chair, which was great, but that sucked. Obviously not like at all supportive. I mean, we've all got pretty bespoke seating systems that are made for our particular bodies. The airport issued chairs are also not electric. So Dan and the other athletes lost their independence and had to rely on a support worker to push them around Rio. Being in those for three days was super uncomfortable. Why on an aeroplane can't the airlines allow you to have your wheelchair just, like can't they just have a spot yeah, where yeah. you just park your wheelchair? Is there a reason? Is there a safety reason? I probably, probably is a safety reason. I'm not sure what the reason is. But that's what everyone wants, I think. Like literally every person who uses a wheelchair wants to be able to take their chair on the plane. Um, and it, it really seems easy, right? Like the way you've described it, it makes sense to me as well. You can take your wheelchair on every other form of transport, so I don't see why the safety thing would be any different to going on a train or a bus or whatever. What has the impact of the Paralympic movement had on the lives of people with a disability, both athletes and, and beyond athletes? Yeah. And have you seen that change mm-hmm. over the course of your career? I have. I've noticed a big change. And I, I think what, if nothing else, what the Paralympic movement's done has for sure elevated the profile of people with disabilities and given people with disabilities who are Paralympians mainly a platform beyond sport, really, to spread their message or to do things beyond sport as well that have an impact on society. And I think when I was young, you would never, ever see people with disabilities on TV or doing things at, at a high level. And now you see multiple people with disabilities in in high-profile roles. While the profile of people with disabilities has increased, swimmer Tim Hodge says that in the Paralympics, there is too much of a focus on what we call higher classifications or less impaired athletes. I think Australia has a shortage of lower-class athletes that are able to compete at a higher level. There can be a significant range in the abilities because of how severe their impairments are. There's a lot less support out there for people with more severe disabilities, and yet they are still just as important in the Paralympic movement. Kate McLaughlin from Paralympics Australia says an increased number of athletes with more severe disabilities presents a real opportunity. My hopes for Brisbane are that we can increase the size of our Australian Paralympic team. At the moment, we are tracking to probably have 17 to 18 sports out of the 22 on the program for Paris. There's a lot of work we can do to identify events that we don't currently contest. We need to improve. At the moment, the Australian Paralympic team is probably a team of mild to moderate disability. We don't have a lot of high needs athletes and there's a lot of medal opportunities in those high needs categories. But a lot of that has to do with access to competition, access to training venues, access to equipment and coaching. And often in those high support needs categories, coaches go, well, that's scary. I don't understand how I can help that athlete. It's too hard. And so we try to, we avoid. We've done some work in our high performance team around identifying areas where we can have competitors in events that we haven't traditionally 
contested in those events. I think the barriers to participation in the in the beginning are the key issue here. So someone with a very low classification might need a hoist to get them into and out of a swimming pool. How many pools in Australia that are Olympic level pools have a hoist on the side of the pool? So number one, that athlete can't even get into the water unless they're in a rehab facility, which is where the hoists are, which is not a competitive environment. So yes, our team size could be looking up to 300, whereas at the moment we're probably looking at a team size of about 180 athletes. The scarcity of severely disabled athletes on the Australian Paralympic team has come up in discussion with a lot of the athletes we spoke to. Their concern that the Paralympics is becoming the games for the less... Yes, the games for the less disabled. Are there any other reasons for there being less participation by athletes with higher needs at the moment? I think this is worldwide a problem as well. It's not just Australia. I think as Paralympic sport becomes more elite... There's broadcast rights. There's, there's possibly more of a focus on, on those with higher classifications. Personally think, though, it comes down to participation at the beginning. We don't get those people in the pathway if they don't realise that they're classifiable for Paralympic Games. I think it's very tempting to move and there's lots of concern that it's moving towards something that features athletes with lower levels of impairment and more minor impairment because it's you know, seen in some ways being more attractive sport, easier to watch, less confronting and prettier. That's Tony Nah. Tony's a retired sports administrator and worked for Paralympics Australia in various capacities from 2000 to 2020. For example, if you've got athletes in a swimming S1 class, which is the most impaired class in swimming, would you sooner watch athletes in a S1 class take two minutes to swim 50 metres Or do you watch athletes in an S10 class, which is the least impaired, take under 60 seconds to swim 100 metres? Tony spelled out what Kate referred to earlier, with broadcast rights possibly influencing the range of classifications. You know, maybe it doesn't seem that way, but when you actually look at it, we had more athletes with higher support needs or eligible sport classes in Tokyo than we did actually in Sydney in 2000. One of the things I am most proud of is that I am a Paralympian. I'm part of a community that celebrates difference and challenges perceptions. I won my Paralympic medal as part of a relay, and I'm often asked if I wish I'd won an individual medal during my time on the team. And my answer is absolutely not. I am so proud to have won that gold medal alongside three close friends. In that relay, we were ranked fifth. We had an incredibly outside chance of a medal at all, let alone a gold. And it's seen in sport all the time. All the data and statistics would have indicated that a win was impossible. But then there's something else. There's hope and determination and the power of an incredible team. And it taught me so much about the richness of happiness when it's shared. And I know too that if we had not had success, we still would have put our arms around each other and said, well done, and how wonderful to have shared that moment in time together. And to me, that's the actual success. To be honest, that's the success of any kind and inclusive team. Regardless of the outcome, you feel safe and supported. The Paralympics has an incredibly rich history And we've seen it in this documentary. Since its inception, the Games have grown in size, in popularity, in media exposure and revenue. 
Many Paralympians are household names. And I've always been aware that Paralympians have a platform that most people with disability don't. But they should. People with disability should be visible in every arena. Unbroken, the Paralympics and its record is hosted by me, Annabelle Williams. The series producer and executive producer is Sarah Allerley. Research is by Kylie Gray and sound engineering by Isabella Tropiano. Andrew Thomas is the commissioning editor for Higher Up, which brings you this series. At Higher Up, we believe in disability support as it should be. Support that can be complex, but still feels easy. Support that's there for you in the moments that matter. And support where you're in control, but can get help if you need it. Because support should be more than just a website. It should be a team of people who help you live your life your way. Higher Up. Disability support as it should be. Visit higherup.com.au. That's H-I-R-E-U-P.com.au.